0: Welcome to Episode 81 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to continue talking about characters, and this time we're going to talk about characters and relationships.
1: Yeah, and if we are both sounding really scatterbrained, we apologize, (laughs) because I think we're, like, not all here today, so anyway. Mm -hmm. Very true. (laughs) Character relationships. Um... This is actually my favorite part of writing. I always like writing character relationships. That's my, just, it's, to me, it's the most fun. And it is actually often the driving reason I will write a book mm-hmm. is to explore a character dynamic between two, a set of characters. It's not always romantic, although romance is often very fun to write, um, It's but it doesn't have to be romantic. So I thoroughly enjoy this. Um, I, I'm trying to think of a, of a good way to kind of talk about this generally rather than so specifically to me, uh, necessarily, but you know, like a lot of the writing and craft stuff you see online, I'm sure say things like, you know, you have to figure out what your characters want from each other, what they're not getting from each other, et cetera, et cetera. And that is absolutely true. Um... And that exists in every every relationship, whether or not you're friends or enemies or lovers or whatever. There's always something that you want from somebody and you don't always get it. But for me, personally, what I always like is a dynamic. And I, it's not necessarily what you need and want for somebody. But I, I like some sort of dynamic, whether it is prickly, or whether it is warm and close, or whether... it I always tend to think of, the, of relationships between characters on that level, rather than sort of like, a, what do they need and want from each other? Mm-hmm. And also, in the context of the whole story, what do these characters... How are these characters distinct from each other? Because you're not going to have the same relationship with everybody. You're going to have different relationships based on who you are... But also what they bring out of you
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um, and who they are, et cetera, et cetera. So those are kind of where I start with with character relationships. I don't know, Kelly, if you have any thoughts at the moment or...
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, You know, I think that the dynamic of a relationship is the most interesting part because... Well, I also agree with the, you know, what characters need and want from each other and, and that sort of thing I think is important, especially if those character arcs are um, a central part of your plot, then those things are going to be really important. But I like um, dynamics even more, I think, um, because this is where I think you get into the the unique types of relationships we have with different people and also how your relationships with people change over time. And Mm -hmm. so like sometimes you have characters that have known each other for years and years and years and their relationships have evolved over time as one or both of them changes and they grow either further apart or come together or their relationship changes because it in itself is dynamic. And so I think, um, that is really interesting. I just read a manuscript that had two um, girls who were best friends and had been um, friends for, you know, their whole lives. And their relationship was changing because one of the girls was changing in a way that the, you know, the main character couldn't relate to. And so she was like, I'm trying to hold on to this relationship that I have with this person, but this person is different. But there's still the person who's been with me through all of these things. And so there was a lot going on. Um, in those character interactions, and it was really fascinating and wonderful to read about. Um, so, yeah, I think I like I like your phrasing of the dynamics of the characters opposed just to what they want from one another.
1: Yeah, because when you talk about what characters want, it goes back to the vulnerability versus strengths and weaknesses kind of a thing. It can be very one dimensional, not always, but. You know, characters are relationships are often messy, and I don't mean messy in that there's drama, although that's often the case. They're they're just messy. You know, there are days when you love someone dearly, and then there are days when you just want to slap them upside the head. Just and it could be a number of different factors. It could be just that you're having an off day, or they're having an off day. You know, their friendships are never. I I use friendships as kind of the first example, but again, it's not just friendships. I mean, it, you know, they're all relationships are messy and it's the messiness that I find compelling. (laughs) And because I think to some extent, we always try to focus on the positive aspects of anything when writing, because we want our worlds to be aspirational. We want... I, mean, and I can't deny that there is an element of escapism right in everything that we write you this is the world that you want it to this is the world as you wish it would be or what you what you would do in a situation like this, and often that does extend to our relationships with other people. This is what I wish my friendship would be like. It's always supportive, never blah blah blah, blah. but that's not true to life, and finding the messiness in your relationships. In fiction, I don't want you to like go around like instigating any personal drama, but like you know finding the messiness in your relation in the relationships between your characters really makes those relationships stand out to me and actually, what I think about is ensemble TV shows because ensemble TV shows, if they're good will will have that messiness because somebody's relationship with somebody is not the same as the relationship with somebody else and where does that go and how does that affect the whole group dynamic. Like, I like that. And to make it easier, a lot of showrunners and writers often have character types. Mm. You know, like so-and-so is the funny boy next door or so-and-so is, you know, the sarcastic witty one or so-and-so is the, you know, that kind of a thing. And I think... I have always said this, that I don't mind tropes. I love tropes. And just because someone uses a trope doesn't necessarily mean it's cliché or stereotyped. Um, So those tropes don't necessarily bother me. It's just when they never go beyond the trope themselves, and when they don't insert the messiness that comes with human nature into those tropes and into those relationships, then I think, oh, well, you know, nobody's very well-written. It's kind of flat and uncharacterized and blah, 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 blah. So once again, we are really bad at dispensing practical advice. (laughs) But um, I don't know. If you were to ask a writer to deepen character relationships, what is the editorial advice you would be giving that
0: person? Oh, you mean I can't just say deepen your character relationships and then walk away? Um, (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) You just need to deepen these relationships, and how you do that is entirely up to you, and I'm done here. Um, Yeah, that's hard. Let me think. Um, So I think part of deepening character relationships, again, goes back to... um, vulnerability and interiority of each individual character and making sure that you know how each character is feeling at any given moment in that interaction and then you can kind of look at that and and draw that out in the interaction itself i mean there's um JJ and I earlier in the year, or last year rather, because time flies and it's crazy, <laughs> um, we were both obsessed with uh, this television show on Netflix called Glow. And I hope you oh, guys yes. all watched it because it was awesome. But the central relationship in that show are two women, um, Debbie and Ruth, who were best friends. And Ruth slept with Debbie's husband and now their friendship is broken. And they're both on this wrestling show together. Um, And there's a scene about... In the back half of the season where um, they've formed kind of a... a, Not cordial, but a truce in their working relationship where they can bear to be in the same room together. Um, And they're at a function and they're at a bar, like at the bar getting drinks. And there's like a moment where the tension that's existed between them for the whole season melts away because they've been friends for so long and they fall for a moment back into this like comfortable, mm-hmm. like I know you and you know me and we know how to be together as friends. And they have this beautiful scene where for just a moment, all of the things, all the ways they've hurt one another kind of recedes as they have this one conversation. Um, And then they realize like, Even though we can fall back into this so easily, um, we're not healed. We're not better. This doesn't go away. And Debbie kind of says, you know, I hate that you've made it impossible for us to even have a normal conversation anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Because she, you know, it all comes rushing back and she remembers. And in that one scene, you get so much amazing character work because you see this is how we used to be this is the way that we used to care about one another and how easy it is for us to fall back into this and yet there's all of this stuff now that's pulled us apart that isn't going to go away that needs to be dealt with and we're not dealing with it Um, and there's just so much emotion and nuance wrapped up in that one scene Um, and I mean of course every scene isn't going to be that laden with meaning and subtext but Uh, I think when you consider, you know, all angles of an interaction, these characters' history, um, what they've done to one another, the good and the bad, where they're at in that moment, you know, what their moods are like, um, and you consider all of those things when writing the scene, that will kind of bring life into what you're writing, I think.
1: Yeah, I love scenes that showcase the messiness of characters' relationships with each other. And depending on the sort of book you write, but it it can exist in any book, really, um, I think taking the time in between a lot of relentless action to do that does give the reader some breathing room, and it also gives you reasons to care or root for them, I think, This is the thing I find fascinating about, particularly, and now I'm going to turn from friendship in particular to uh, romance, the concept of shipping characters. And I grew up in fandom, so that's a term that's pretty familiar for me, and it is honestly kind of how I relate to books, to be honest. Like, who are the characters that I'm going to ship the most in this it doesn't even have to be mo- books, really. It could be movies. It could be TV shows. It could be anything. Like, who are the characters that I really want to just form a connection? It doesn't actually have to be romantic. There, are, you know, there are times, like in Glow. Like by the end of Glow, I was like, why can't you just be friends again? <laughs> oh, it's. I mean, it it is so realistic because of of the thing that Ruth did. Why it would break up this incredibly close friendship, but you can also see. Because you've seen throughout the show, despite the tension, exactly why they were friends in the first place. It just makes it you're just like. <laughs> um and I you know, it, it I don't actually know why I ship characters the way I do sometimes, because sometimes it just happens. Alright, I'm gonna out myself now as <laughs> a Ray Lowe Shipper, as they call it, from the new Star Wars trilogy. I love Kylo Ren and Ray. I do, and I don't like. I love this dynamic to their to their relationship. I don't even necessarily like that. It, I don't even want it to be romantic per se. I like the what I think TV tropes would call foyer. Um, and I also like. Basically, like I want her to make out with him and kill him, possibly at the same time. It's kind of like my feelings about this pairing, for the most part. Um, and I don't know why it is that I ship them particularly, aside from this, this feeling of potential. And maybe that's really what it is. It's the feeling of potential that the movies have given me or not giving me. The other, the, other car- the other couple I ship in the new trilogy is Finn and Poe. Um, well, yeah. I think, obviously. Uh, so I think it creating potential between characters is actually pretty difficult to do. And it requires a lot of, I, I don't want to say manipulation, but essentially all writing is manipulation. So, it, mm-hmm. um, But it, it does require careful balancing on the writer's part to show... The parts where your characters will fit together, even if the characters themselves have not realized that yet.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I don't know how to build it. I only know that it exists and that it shows up sometimes, or it doesn't. Like, you know, people who've read my book, some people really love the romance, some people did not. And, you know, sometimes that comes down to personal preference. You can ask me and Kelly about... (laughs) (laughs) Zutara versus Katang. We, mm-hmm. <laughs> we have different Zutara names. forever. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, so it obviously comes down to personal preference. Mm-hmm. And also, it could, and the personal preference often comes to, I can intellectually see why people ship certain characters, even if it doesn't resonate for me. Mm-hmm. And creating that potential... Obviously, it comes through their interactions with each other. It comes through uh, the decisions they make. Often, the choices characters make reveal much more about who they are than what they say or even what they do. Mm -hmm. Because what they do may run counter to what they actually believe or want to do. Um, So their interior mind is at conflict with the actions that they have to take. But the decision that they've taken to you know, carry out this action, that says a lot more about a character and how does that butt up against the Mm -hmm. character that you're trying to develop a relationship with. I know I'm probably rambling. Sorry, you guys. (laughs) Um, I don't know. About potentiality between characters. What makes you cause... What makes you ship something?
0: Why do you ship Zutara? I think I like the word potential a lot and tension. Um normally tension would be my go-to word, but I think tension implies um, not necessarily a negativity, but like something at odds. And I don't think that's always the case. So I like kind of the word potential or chemistry or, you know, just that, that indefinable quality that you just kind of know it when you see it. Um, And I like that in all relationships, not just romantic, but I think with Zutara, um, you know, one of the things that I, that I liked a lot, and if you've listened to our other podcast, you've heard me talk about it more at length. It's not even necessarily so much that I ship Zutara so much as I don't ship Katara and Aang, and I do love Zuko, and so I just kind of gravitate toward that um, more than anything else. But I think that Katara and Zuko have an interesting, um... I think all of their scenes were really charged and interesting. They both had lost their mothers. They both, um, are trying to deal with this, um, complicated, like a boiling over of emotions and, you know, anger and, and, um, sadness and grief and all of this stuff that they both have to access and have to find a way to deal with it. And I just found all the ways that they connected, uh, in all of their scenes together, really compelling and, um, felt like they brought out compassion in one another. And, um, I just really enjoyed all their scenes together, but I think whether it's Zutara or, um, Katang or any ship in any, Property, I think um, the thing that causes us to emotionally invest, because that's what shipping is, right? Right. It's like when you become emotionally invested in these characters such that you have wants for them that might even be outside the parameters of the story itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that emotional investment, I think, is not only what we want as readers to have in characters but what as a writer you want your characters to have in one another. We care about the people in our lives and we manifest that affection and that caring in different ways depending on who we are and what the relationship is like, but you know, the people that are important to you in your life, however they're important to you, they they matter in a real way. And I think it's that mattering, it's that um, that emotional investment that you want to bring out on the page. You don't want your characters to have friends like just because, like, oh, I need a friend and this is my friend-shaped character that will stand in on the friend role. And, you know, you want to build a relationship there. Why are these people friends? Why do they care about each other? Why are they important? Um, this is a, one of the reasons why... Um, the instant love trope or like the faded star-crossed sort of a love thing is not interesting to me because um, for me, all those elements there of um, building up and becoming entwined in one another's lives in real nuanced ways don't often present themselves in those tropes. And, that's the stuff that I find really interesting about characters. And so that's not to say you can't have that stuff with instant love, but I think instant love tropes often become about the fadedness and the doom of it and the inevitability and the destiny and like all these really big concepts and less about the two individual people. And sometimes I almost feel like it doesn't matter who the couple is as people. They're just, they're, they're, you know, being swept along by fate, and they could be anyone, and their story would be the same. And so that, to me, is less interesting than learning why it is that two people choose to be in one another's lives.
1: Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the fated love trope, either. Well, I don't know. I... Of course, never say never, right? You, I'm sure I can oh, yeah. always think of an example to that disproves my general rule, but I think for a lot of that, not a lot, sometimes a faded love for faded love trope, the tension comes from the fact that they cannot be together, or that there is something keeping an
0: them obstacle, apart. Yeah. Or
1: um, it's often why I dislike Romeo and Juliet sort of narratives. And not that I dislike them universally, because there's always like forbidden love stories that I love, of course. But it's the obstacle rather than, there's like more of an external obstacle rather than like some other reason that these characters can't be together right now that seems to overtake the whole narrative. I mean, I've never cared about either Romeo or Juliet being together, you know, in the play. And so it was never really that interesting to me. But like I said, who knows? I mean, one of my favorite relationships from Sailor Moon is actually the main characters um, Usagi and Mamoru, who are who are, who are reincarnated lovers. Um, but what I like about that one is that they were reincarnated lovers, but in this life, they when they initially meet, they hate each other, and so it's that like slow revealing over the course of the show that they have similar dreams that they have secret identities also that are supportive of each other, but even if they their civilian forms they don't know that. So there's Mm -hmm. like contention when they're Usagi and Mamoru and then when they are Sailor Moon and Tuxedo Mask, they're supportive of each other and they find themselves inexplicably drawn to each other without knowing why and that is because they are literally reincarnated lovers. So like, you know, it's not to say it doesn't work and that it can't work because clearly I love it in Sailor Moon. But Even as I've described it to you guys, there are multiple reasons and layers in this particular trope. Um, so it's not just like a straight up flat that they're reincarnated and that's why they're drawn to each other. That is why they're drawn to each other, but it's also not the reason that they are not together. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... It's interesting, as I when I was younger, I think I shipped far more actively than I do now because nowadays I'm far more likely to just go along with whatever canon relationship the author provides me because I've gotten tired and lazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I also think authors have gotten fairly good at kind of guiding me to the end game that they want me to have, if that makes sense. Um, and... Again, it doesn't just have to be with, with you know, romantic relationships. So that's the easiest to talk about sometimes. Um, and you know, there or there are books where, and it, it can the the flatness can also come with friendships, as as Kelly said. You know, like here is a friend shaped person in the narrative who exists to only provide emotional support for your main character and doesn't ever seem to get anything in return. Yeah. And even if that friend character has a major storyline or whatever, if if I don't see some sort of... Repre- rep, I can't say this word, so any back and forth, <laughs> um, any give and take between the two characters, then I'm not going to be invested in this friendship either. And it's like with, you know, again, with Harry Potter, you have Ron... And- And Harry was really the first friendship that you see in that series. And she's really... And J.K. Rowling is really good at making you root for them as friends. You know, Ron is excited to meet this kid who has no idea that he's the last son of a really well-known wizarding family. Um, He's excited that he kind of knows more than somebody for once. You know, and, and Harry is grateful that someone else can kind of show him around and so that's kind of like the initial connection that they make you know so like that's a really realistic friendship and then of course ron's insecurity and also harry's obliviousness do get in the way of that friendship occasionally and they break up quote unquote you know like they break up their friendship over the course of of the book and is irritated as irritating as I found Ron, I still wanted them to patch up their friendship and be friends again. So, um, anything else you want to say about character relationships?
0: Yeah, I think that, um, I think that dynamics, not just dynamics now within like the, the movement of the relationship, let's say that, um, The way the relationship evolves over time I think is always really interesting too and the way that you know our friends lift us up or let us down Mm -hmm. um, is really interesting you know and I think too about how secondary characters that I can think of that made lasting impressions on me by how well crafted they are like for some reason the one that I'm thinking of right now is um, Severo from Red Rising Um, I love him I just love him, right? He's just... (laughs) He's just so great, and he's so complicated as a character, and he is not the protagonist, um, you know, uh, by a long shot, but he has such a rich interiority and such interesting relationships with the other characters that change as he disapproves of what they do, or they disappoint him, or, you know, it's... Um, I think he's just just such a well-written character that has that kind of um, authenticity that you look for that feels like a real person that feels like someone that you care about and root for I think uh, what I love
1: particularly in characters and this doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be romantic or even friendship based and it really only works for certain types of characters but I love when characters reveal themselves to have an exception to their worldview. And for Sevro, that exception is Darrow. Like he clearly is loyal and loves Darrow. He hates everyone else, but he loves Darrow. <laughs> and I love that. That's <laughs> like one of my one of my favorite little tropes where it's like I hate everyone but you.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's interesting, you know, like you see um how your characters are when they are among their equals, you know, people who are on their level um, and how they react to those people versus, you know, how they react to people above or beneath them. And I don't mean necessarily, you know, class or anything else, but I just mean like when you have people that are well matched, um, that is something that I think makes a big difference. I think that's one of the really big complaints about Ron and Hermione is that opposed as aside from Ron, just being not great in that, that people just feel that they're not well matched, that she is so he's not her equal. um, And that she has to bring herself down to another level to kind of meet him where he's at. And people don't find that as compelling as two people who are equal and can dish it out kind of the same way they can take it and meet one another head on. That was a tweet I had made because
1: I was like, do you ever mourn a character that could have been yeah. R.I.P. Ron Weasley? <laughs> chess strategist, like chess master and potential Wizarding War strategist, book one to book two. Like,
0: oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> where did Ron's chess
0: playing ability go? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They just dropped all that it just all disappeared. And like he plays
1: chess with Harry kind of like recreationally throughout the rest of the series, you know, like at Christmas or at the burrow or whatever whatever, but
0: but the skills that make him a good chess player should translate yes. to the way that he thinks about and solves problems in the real world and they don't. <laughs> No. Yeah.
1: Because the only time you ever see him use his actual chess playing abilities is in book one, where there's that one of the trials that they have to do to get to the Sorcerer's Stone. And, you know, and they take place of the different pieces on the chessboard. And that's like a real active way where he's like overlooking the whole thing. And he's deciding how to direct people. Where is that in the rest of the series? Like, where is this ability to essentially marshal people? And... Plan things out and strategize because Hermione sort of absorbs those skills from Ron, mm-hmm. and Hermione and I. Uh, Hermione, I love her, but she's really book smart and doesn't necessarily like in the first books. Anyway, she's really smart, but doesn't necessarily have any common sense mm-hmm. in that kind of that sort of strategic way that Ron is supposedly sup- sh- supposed to have. Um, but then as the book sort of went on, Ron just kind of became, yeah, deadweight.
0: he becomes, yeah, he becomes the comedy mule and he becomes the Wizarding World's info dump translator. <laughs> yeah. You know, cause, cause Harry and Hermione are not, didn't grow up in the Wizarding World. So anytime they need to understand something unique to wizards, Ron is there to tell them what it is, uh, yeah, and he loses kind of that aspect of his character, which is unfortunate.
1: No, and I would have been like. Also, I'm sort of biased by like a lot of fanfic I remember reading when I was younger. Like, in the period of time when, when there was more, when there were years between the books coming out as opposed to them coming out in a year, there was more time for a lot of writers to essentially insert their own. Versions of the story, and a lot of the f- f- fic- fan fiction I remember reading when I was younger really had Ron as this like really smart like strategist, and and, and there's a part of me that's like, but there, it could have been so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could have had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, is there anything else at the moment that we can think of in terms of? Character relationships? Of course, I could always bring it back to Dragon Age if you guys want, because I'm always <laughs> willing to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that um, sometimes this is something that I see sometimes in books where a writer has their main character really well figured out. And so they know this is how my main character reacts when they're angry. This is how this main character reacts, you know, when they're calm or whatever else. And they've got this clear picture of this person and their behavior. Um, But they don't account for the way that changes depending on, who else is in the room or who the protagonist is talking to or who they're arguing with. Nobody behaves the same way all the time with everyone. Even if you have impulses, you know, even if your impulses when angry are to lash out, you'll lash out in different ways about different things, depending on who you're talking to. And I think that kind of nuance is important. And that's kind of ultimately what, we're trying to talk about when we talk about the importance of character relationships, um, that, you know, that you change when you're with different groups of friends, you change when you're with friends versus family or different family members. You know, we all are a little bit of a chameleon in that way, where we amplify certain parts of ourselves around certain people and suppress them around other people. And the same thing should be true of your characters even if your character is, you know, at their core this same person um they're going to behave differently with different people and i think that's really what you should be aware of um when you're writing.
1: Yeah, because if everyone if they react the same way to everybody, then there's none of that messiness that i've talked about that really yeah. makes people seem realistic and leap off the page to me. So basically our advice just boils down to make it, make it a little bit messy. Yeah. It's kind of, that's it. <laughs> you know? Um, so if we want to wrap up, wrap that part up, why don't we talk
0: about what we are working on? Um, I am all most caught up. Yay. I didn't catch up when I said it would, but I'm almost caught up. I only have 44 queries left from 2017. And I have seven manuscripts left down from the 16 that I had, I think, the last time we recorded. So, Dang, girl. <laughs> yeah, really close, really, really close to catching up. Hope to be totally done with 2017 at the end of the week. So that has been my sole and total focus. <laughs> How about you? Uh, I am in the throes
1: of a, just a manic phase. And for me, being manic means I can't concentrate on anything um, at all. I'm bored all the time. And it's terrible because I can't like force myself to sit down and concentrate. I can't even sleep or nap because uh, at least that would pass time. If I could nap, I could pass the time. So what I've been doing a lot is um, kind of cleaning my house. And by cleaning my house, I just mean I just like moving things around. Not actually putting anything away, not actually straightening things up, not actually doing anything, I'm just like moving things around. Um, but in, in my moments of clarity, when I can write, I am working on my Guardians book, my first Guardians book, and also I got finished copies of Shadow Song i saw so I uh, can't believe the book is supposed to come out in like two weeks three weeks something ridiculous and i just i'm like oh yeah it's a book that's coming out and i reread shadow song and i liked it i was like great and i just i don't want to like you know i put so much effort into my firstborn that by the time my second born came around i'm just like i'm really tired you guys Um, my firstborn got all the piano lessons and soccer camp and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, is the second one fed? Okay, it's fine. (laughs) um, but there is some stuff that I have to kind of get ready for in terms of lunch, uh, which I'm having at my local bookstore, which should be exciting because I have not actually had an event there. The bookstore is pretty new. Um, so you know, going just kind of business-related stuff when I am not writing and when I am not um, squirrely. So (laughs) that's what I'm working on. What are you reading?
0: I stayed up all night last night to read Forest of a Thousand Lanterns by Julie Dow. I had got it from the library a couple of months ago and was so excited to read it. And then somehow the entire month had passed and it disappeared uh, from my library queue without me actually opening it up and starting it. So that was really depressing. And then I had to get back on the wait list. So I had to wait like another... I don't know, four or five months, um, but I finally, finally forced myself to sit down and read it last night um, and make time for pleasure reading, which I'm trying to do this year. It was so, so good. Isn't it? Um, it's great. It I love it. really is. You know, I, I love the concept of villain origin stories, and I think they're very difficult to do well, and I think that... Julie does a phenomenal, phenomenal job um, with this one. With just, you know, yeah, it was great. It was very creepy. I felt like I went in really prepared. Um, and then, you know, probably in the last third when stuff started getting really crazy, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so creepy and wonderful. And she's just, um, she's just, it's a great, great book. And now I'm all excited because. The next one comes out this year but not until like october or something yeah so. unfortunately it'll be a while yeah and then on deck which i have not started yet but i just got is love hate and other filters by oh, samira yeah. ahmed yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: exciting yeah what um, about you no squirrel brain can't focus mm. on anything mm-hmm. <laughs> i can't even listen to podcasts, kelly like that's like how bad it is you guys like i can't even listen to podcasts i'm just a hamster in a wheel in my house Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not helping that today as we record there's like eight inches of snow falling outside so i'm just like actually cooped in my house um i don't know what i'm doing with my time really
0: uh any off many recommendations no (laughs) No, not really. Uh, it's my daughter's birthday this week. So we've been doing a lot of prep for that and haven't really watched anything. I'm also taking a break from podcasts, which is really nice. Um, it's been refreshing to just kind of step away from that for a little bit. Uh, although I'm sure I'll be back, but yeah, I haven't watched anything. Haven't, uh, I'm very. I'm getting very excited for the Winter Olympics, but that's not for another couple of weeks. And, uh, yeah. I think
1: I've talked about Black Mirror last time, but we just finished the most recent episode in the new season of Black Mirror. Which, the season as a whole was kind of hit and miss. To be honest, they're all kind of hit and miss. Like, some of them, when they're good, they're really good. And then some of them yeah. are just kind of, hmm, they're not you know whatever, but and so this most recent one, the last one is called Black Museum, and sort of similar to another one of their episodes, which was white Christmas, that one had John Ham actually um white Christmas has sort of three mini stories in one big story, and so the same thing is kind of in Black Museum there's sort of three mini stories, and then kind of one in the kind of larger frame narrative, and the first two mini stories in Black Museum you know, we're creepy as, as Black Mirror is usually pretty good at doing but the last story blew my mind and it was the first time since probably San Junipero which was like the last episode I really loved in Black Mirror where I like sat up, because Mark and I were watching and we, I just sat up and went, whoa like, I could feel all the synapses like firing at the back of my brain um, I always recommend Black Mirror, even the duds, because I think some people connect to the ones that I consider duds more than others, and I can't remember. Have you seen it?
0: No, I've seen one episode, and it was not. It's too.
1: Is it, it, the, is it the first
0: one? Is that the one with the pig and the yes. prime minister? Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, I always see people <laughs> I was like, I know the pig is kind of a lot, but I promise if you move past that, it gets better. Um, because they're not all, you know, I would say this is science fiction and its finest, and it is an anthology show. There is no connecting narrative between any of the episodes. They are all standalones, which is great for my bipolar brain right now because I can just kind of watch one, and it's yep. done. Um, but I was trying to pitch Black Mirror, actually, to my friend Lemon, and I was, like, doing a terrible job because it's really hard to describe the show to people who haven't seen it. Um I always kind of said it's it's like the twilight zone but for this current generation, but if you haven't seen the twilight zone then it means nothing to you. Right. Um or it's really a show about how technology reveals the best and worst of human society. Or my other tagline was um new toys, same old problems. <laughs> And so my particular favorite episodes in Black Mirror are always the ones that deal with relationships and how technology changes, but also relationships still at the core are there, are the same. It's just that cha- yeah. you know, it, technology just sort of changes maybe how we go about it on a daily basis. So the, my favorite ones are Be Right Back, which has, um, I don't remember the actress's name, but she's Peggy Carter. <laughs> Uh, from, oh
0: yes, mm-hmm.
1: and <laughs> and Hux from Star Wars, <laughs> <laughs> or Bill Weasley. That's if that's a, a reference that you get better. Um, <laughs> I love that episode. It's so it's so it's wonderful and it's great. And then the other relationship based one I love, as I talked about before, was Sand and Um, White, or rather Black Mirror, is written by a British dude. So. A lot of the the first two seasons are anyway are pretty British in, in terms of I think the issues that they're discussing. They are they're a little bit like the whole thing about the pig and the prime minister I think is a commentary on David Cameron in some way, but I don't know what the commentary is. Um, the but Black Museum is kind of the first time that the show sort of addresses race. And I know some people found it heavy handed, but I thought it was pretty well done. So that's another reason I liked it. And a lot of the the other reasons I liked there are two episodes from this most recent season that I liked USS Callister, which is sort of an homage to Star Trek, but also kind of shows you like the real dark side of mass, like male entitlement. (laughs) Um, so that's, I really enjoyed that and it had the mother from How I Met Your Mother. Um, and then all the ones in the middle were kind of mm, hit or miss and then Black Museum. So again, I, it's really hard to pitch this show to people, but I do promise you do not have to watch them in order. So do not watch the first episode because that's the one most people stop because they're just like, I don't want to watch it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: nope. Nope, I was officially done. <laughs> <laughs> They're
1: not all like that, I promise. I promise. Some of them are even happy. Like, some of them actually have happy endings. Um. So that's my one big off menu recommendation. I tried to go see The Shape of Water, but again, I have no attention span. Mm. But I really want to see it. I mean, it's, like, totally up my alley, so I know I'll love it. But I just... No attention span for that either. Um, can't even play video games, you guys. So I'm, you know, I'm in that hell where I can't even talk about Dragon Age. Although I was talking about Dragon Age with my friends, I went to a um, a con this weekend. I wasn't on programming, but my friends were there, and we were just talking about Dragon Age, and they'd all played through the game multiple times, and I was like, Oh, why? I have a reason I play through multiple times. I'm just curious to see what yours are. And they're like, well, obviously the first time I play through as myself. And then all the subsequent times I play through as a different character that I've created to romance the characters that I didn't create, that I didn't romance the first time. And I was like, that is exactly how I play too. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I can't even, I can't even sit in front of my console and and pay attention to that either. So that's where I am. I'm in hell. It really Mm. sucks. Um yeah, so I think did we we had a couple of questions from last time. Yeah. And I don't know if anything new came in. Oh. This was one that came in a couple days ago from Rebecca Mix, and it says, Would you guys rather fight ten duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? Assume all are trying to eat your soul.
0: Ten horse-sized ducks. No, ten duck-sized horses. Yes. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? No, 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 no. Ten duck-sized horses. Little horses, ten of them. I'll kick them. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> ten little ones. Yes, I would agree. Yeah.
1: So that was fairly easy. And then another one was In also from Rebecca. In times here you find yourself stressed, hopeless, in a bad spell, is there a quote or an activity or a thing that helps bring you peace, comfort, and helps you remember you're going to make it through?
0: Mm. Um I have comfort reads that I pretty much will turn to at that time. I don't think there's a specific quote. I'm not really a quote person. Um but I I do comfort myself with familiar narratives. I got a couple TV shows or movies and a couple of um books that I call my comfort reads or watches and I'll kind of retreat into those for a little while. Um What are your comfort and- reads? A Harry Potter. Um, obviously, Little Women is another one. Um, sometimes I get into this very, very specific mood, and then there's a book called Cold Sassy Tree by Olive Burns, which is an adult, um, or kind of a coming of age, but more adult for sure than YA, a book that was written, I think, in like the 80s, uh, just about a southern small-time dra- small drama in a southern town that is unlike anything I ever read normally. I never read these types of books, but for whatever reason, I read Cold Sassy Tree when I was a young teenager, and it just kind of warmed its way into my heart. And so if I'm in specific moods, I'll read that book. That's like Me and the Red Tent by Anita Diamant.
1: Like, it's not normally a book that I would pick up, and it's even not all that, like, light and fluffy. Like, it's not light and fluffy at all. But
0: I do consider consider that a comfort read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. that's exactly like this. Yeah, this is about the summer that a boy is like 15 and his grandmother died and his grandfather married someone that the family finds unsuitable. And there's just all this drama and growing up and first love and death and heartache. And it's very good, <laughs> but not my usual. But yeah, I would say I just kind of turn back to certain things. Not so much music anymore. When I was younger, it was certain music. Um you know and and i think that um that yeah i kind of retreat into comforting things and blankets and and a few small specific people and uh and just kind of write it write it out when i can for me it's a little bit different being manic or depressed
1: i know is a thing that passes that's just 20 years of living with this so I know myself and it also depends because as I've confessed you guys, I can't concentrate on anything right now so the only thing I'm doing right now is just spinning my wheels and cleaning my house. I often actually find that small repetitive movements or activity is very, very soothing. Things that don't take a lot out of me, even mentally, but just enough to keep me from being bored. So things like um, the 2048 tile game. I can play that kind of all day when I'm in a period like this. Just because it passes time and I, it, I don't have to think so hard about it. And mm-hmm. I don't have emotional investment in it the way I do other video game characters. Um, or... Anything, anything tactile really helps too. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, as I mentioned, cleaning or knitting, you know, I used to knit a lot and the repetitive motion that comes with knitting, I find very soothing. And also it actually helps me focus on other things. So if, if I am listening, for example, if I, if I am knitting, I can also listen to an audiobook or a podcast, but what I used to do when I'm not such as in a squirrely brain mood uh what I would do is I would listen to podcasts while I was doing other things like while I was running errands while I was going to the grocery store when I was at the gym I would be listening to a podcast but I can't do that when I'm manic right now but if I'm knitting or if I'm otherwise doing something small um and tactile then I can focus better mm-hmm. um when I'm depressed it often naps <laughs> yeah sleep is huge <laughs> Or, or I can read more when I'm depressed. So, again, comfort reads um, are something. Though well, most of my comfort reads aren't that fluffy.
0: No. I, I find that I almost gravitate toward more, you know, darker things. Um, yeah, I look for catharsis.
1: This is the thing yes. about The Red Tent is that it's not a light and fluffy book by any means. But there is definite emotional catharsis by the end of this book. And mm-hmm. that is what is comforting. So it's like no matter how terrible things get for the character in this book, it I know it has a happy ending, and I also know that that happy ending is satisfying to me, hence why I consider it a comfort read. The Kuschel's Dart books I also mm-hmm. find comforting. Um, I don't know if I have any movies really, though.
0: I'm not really somebody who watches a ton of movies for comfort. Yeah, I have more TV shows, I think, than movies. Um, Like what? Buffy was always a huge one. Um, My So-Called Life is another one that I will watch uh, if I'm feeling really depressed and want comfort. Um, You know, there's... I think that for me, there's a difference between like rereading, you know, like comfort reads and that like, oh, I reread this and I love it. And I, you know, the fluffier kind of stuff um, that you were talking about. But then like if I'm really struggling and having a difficult emotional time, I do think I look for that catharsis. Um, And, you know, and that's often when I will end up binge watching shows I've never seen before. Like I had one really bad year when I lived in New York still and I was briefly unemployed and that brief period of unemployment happened to coincide with a really bad um, bout of depression on my part and I think I watched something like eight or nine television shows all the way through. That's when I first watched Buffy. It's when I first watched Angel. I first watched Veronica Mars then. I watched um, all of the seasons of Lost that I hadn't seen up until that point so I could get caught up. I watched... 4400. I I just I would watch anything. I was like, does it have a million episodes? I'll watch it. And then and then I would just sit there and I would just absorb vast quantities of television, but it was never sitcoms. It was never anything to try to pull me out of those moods. It was always I wanted to burrow in, and so it was just dramas and I did that with Battlestar Galactica, actually. Yes, Battlestar Galactica was one of them too. Um,
1: And like the thing about Battlestar Galactica, it is kind of inextricable from that brief period of time when I was unemployed in New York, and it was like the middle of winter. I think I was doing my internship at Writer's House, but I didn't have like Mm -hmm. a steady flow of income. So the days when I wasn't at Writer's House, and I, I literally don't think I left my couch i don't even think i showered for like five days i just binge watched all of battlestar galactica even after it got weird like mm -hmm. the third (laughs) season of battlestar galactica is bizarre yep and you're like i'm I'm in too deep i gotta keep (laughs) gotta keep i gotta just push through go to the other through to the other side because like when lee or when apollo shows up in a fat suit you're just like why Yeah, yeah, And then my favorite part about that show is that I think it's supposed to indicate that he's, like, let himself go, but it's clearly the actor in a fat suit, but it's, like, his character is supposed to have gained weight, but it's just the guy in a fat suit, and then inexplicably, like, two episodes later, the weight's gone. He's just lost the weight again, so he's back to his, like, extremely fit self, and you're like, why does Starbuck have really bad extensions in her hair? Like, (laughs) I don't understand, but I'm just gonna watch... I gotta have to. I'm in it to the very end of the show. Oh God. <laughs> um. So, uh, are there any other questions that we did not get? I don't
0: know. Those were kind of refreshing. Not about publishing yeah, not necessarily. About
1: publishing related things.
0: Which we'll we answer read. anything. Yeah, you can ask us anything. <laughs> it's fine.
1: Um. We did get. Well, we had a couple of reviews that we did not read mm-hmm. the last time. So. Kelly, you can do the honors.
0: Yay! Uh, You guys may or may not be able to hear my cat, who is sitting at my feet meowing discontentedly. All right, let's find the latest review. Okay, um, Okay, this one is from I think <laughs> 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 the absolute best. This podcast is my favorite podcast. I've listened to every single episode and I feel almost as excited to hear a new episode as I imagine Kelly does when she sees there's a new review. <laughs> you must be pretty darn excited then. <sighs> The the combined knowledge from their experiences gives you unique insight into what it's like working in the publishing industry and make this podcast a must listen. Both ladies are brutally honest and do not shy away from more difficult topics. From writing story 101 guides on tropes and archetypes or breaking down contracts or how to deal with becoming a public figure as an author, the Pub Crawl podcast has it all. Kelly and JJ are incredibly charming, and every time I listen to a new podcast, it feels like catching up with old friends, friends that are far more knowledgeable than I. The sound quality is also pretty solid most of the time, with only a few minor exceptions from technological hiccups. I've learned so much and am grateful to that but I've learned so much, and I'm grateful that this is a resource that I can come back to. And also, I've gotten plenty of fantastic media recommendations through this show, whether books or otherwise. Thank you, ladies. You are both the best.
1: Oh well, thank you. I love your username. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yay! <laughs> it's the exact sound I'm making right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to have one more discussion about characters where we talk about narrative arcs for characters over the course of a book. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice.
1: Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast.
0: If you want more Pub Crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on
1: Twitter at pubcrawlblog,
0: Blog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Publishing crawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones. That's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McClaude, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, available now wherever books are sold.
1: If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or ask us on Twitter using the hashtag AskPubCrawl.
0: Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye! Bye! (laughs) (laughs) I did it! Yes!
1: I have managed to get a zit right on my earlobe.
0: Oh, I've had one of those before. It what sucks. is this? I don't know. I had one inside my ear. Oh, oh. And when it popped, it felt like, it sounded like I'd ripped open a dimension to, like, another <laughs> another place. It was horrifying. I, like, turned my head a little, and it must have just pulled the skin taut enough, and yeah. it was like, rip. <laughs> I was like, oh my god. What on <laughs> earth is this? It was horrifying. <laughs> oh god, that's all on mic, too, isn't it? <laughs> It's all on Mike. It'll go on the bloopers. It's fine. Bloopers. Wow, that's horrifying. Anyway.